Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Now, we have been in a series of speakers. We are in the mid-zone of that time. And uh, Abdu, I was just thinking, actually, you've been with us probably the longest of our current group of speakers. It's probably been eight, ten, maybe, I don't know, even longer than that if you go back to the first time that you and Mickey, some others, uh, he and Mickey uh, Bellamenti, our discipleship pastor, were roommates together in University of Michigan. Um, Abdu, at one time, was one of the top attorneys in Michigan, stepped away from that to pursue uh, a ministry in apologetics, which is a defense of the faith and an intellectual rendering of that. Um, Abdu is a author, he is a speaker, he is 10 feet tall, um, <laughs> by far our hugest uh, speaker of all time. So I'm going to ask, would you please very warmly welcome our good friend, Abdu Murray. Thank you, I think. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about a joke that may be in poor taste, but I think I'm going to say it anyway. Um, it's, uh, I travel a lot to Asia, and I'm huge in Asia. <laughs> Can we edit this? Oh, yeah, it's live streamed. So, to all my Asian friends, I love you guys. Um, uh, <clears throat> Thank you all for having me here uh, at Rock Point. Um, all of us have had an interesting year, um, and uh, interesting is a euphemism for awful. Um, <clears throat> but sometimes it's been great. Some really good things as well. A lot of things we learn over the course of the, of the time. Uh, I know I can speak for, for you <clears throat> if I say that there's been things that have been like, I don't know what the Lord is teaching me, and there's things like, oh my goodness, that's what I learned. Um, and for me, uh, my family as well, we've learned a lot over the past year for various things and for various reasons. Um, and uh, I'm going to share with you a little bit of the, my, my testimony, not through what's happened in the past year, not that, um, but, but my story about coming to faith. I won't share the detail about how I came to faith, although I'll give a little bit of a snippet here and there. Some of you have heard it. It's online. Um, what I wanted to share with you essentially is the basic gist of what happened in terms of what I discovered during the course of my journey of faith to come to Christ and what's actually happened since then. Sort of, so I've been a believer now for 21 years. Uh, in June of this year, it was 21 years that I came to faith. And I came to faith uh, actually at Mickey Battlementi's house. Um, uh, sitting downstairs, not expecting it to happen at the slightest bit, didn't expect it. Uh, he and I have spent years growing up I mean, this is the kind of nerdy relationship Mickey and I have had, okay? So um, this was not part of the first service. You guys get a bonus here. Um, and I hope he's okay with me saying these things. Um, if he's not, well, I guess we have an interesting friendship from now on, too. Um, but we would go to, like, you know, 
class trips down to Cedar Point, for example, and I would drive and I had this, I was obsessed with making sure that when I got my first car, it would be big enough to fit all my friends in it. Uh, so we had a bunch of friends in the car, way more than probably was legally advisable, um, driving down to Cedar Point, everyone's excited, and then you're driving back from Cedar Point the same day, and maybe you've had this experience where you're like, why do we leave the same day? You know, I'm so tired and all this. Well, everyone's asleep. Everyone kind of smells because they've been out in the, in, in the, uh, the sun all day. And Mickey and I are driving. He's in the front seat with me to keep me awake. Um, and I had this obsession. I had to be the one who drove for whatever reason. I didn't, like, insist on it. It just ended up being the way it was. And so in order to keep me awake, we would have discussions. And it wasn't about sports or girls or what. It was about, like, what does nothingness mean? Like, how can you define nothing without using the word nothing in the definition? You know, this is like what 16-year-old boys don't talk about. Um, but we had this nerdy sort of relationship with that. So we had this, like, philosophical journey over the course of many years together as friends. Uh, so when he came to faith uh, shortly before I did, um, it, it took a turn, and it, it, was, it was deepening in that sense. So it wasn't a surprise that... It was in the middle of me raising some objections and raising some issues and talking about some things that I was learning that I uh, gave my life to Christ there. Uh, and uh, my future wife, Nicole, was in the house. She was upstairs with um, her best friend, Kate, who's now Mickey's wife as well. And then we said, hey, come downstairs. There's something we want to do. And I did it. I got to do that prayer and mean it this time because I said it before. But I meant it this time with them. Uh, I say all that, I'm not exactly sure why, uh, other than to say that um, the journey of faith doesn't just end when you accept Christ. It doesn't end there. There's this discovery that happens. So that was at the tail end of nine years. Nine years of looking, doubting, searching, saying, this can't be true. I don't want it to be true. Oh my goodness, maybe it is actually true. Now I really don't want it to be true because I think it actually is true to accepting it as true and believing, oh my goodness, that's gorgeous what I now believe to be true. But then after that, there's a journey of faith, and people don't tell you this. One guy did actually say it. Jesus actually did say, hey, it gets harder from here, which is a terrible slogan for sales. <laughs> but he does it, and that progression happens. But you learn so much about who he is. And so what I want to do today, if, if you don't mind my doing this, is normally I'll come up here and I'll give us a structured argument. If I have my three points, they lead to the point and the argument and application for your life. I'm going to disappoint you, I think, in that I'm not going to have a direct application for your life. I'm not going to say, now this is how you should live your life, or this is how you apply these truths to your life. I'm going to leave that to you, because all I want to do this morning is extend the worship. That's all I want to do. And what I say today is extend the worship and talk to you from my theme of incomparable, about how God is incomparable. And what I've learned in the course of coming to faith and then living out the faith through the various things that I've experienced, some of very recent vintage, how God is incomparable. You learn a lot when things aren't going right, whether people disappoint you or circumstances disappoint you. What you learn the most is that Jesus never disappoints you. He just, he just never fails. He never takes power and messes with it to, 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 to hurt the vulnerable, but he also uses power to even get those who are in power to see how they can be redeemed from their selfishness. And he, he, he caresses and, and, and coddles and, and, and holds those who are vulnerable and those who are even powerful and says there's a way forward, there's a redemption, there's something beautiful about all this. So what I want to share with you is how we can actually see Jesus' incomparability. 
And pain has a way of showing us this, and our lives of late has a way of showing us this in a way that maybe nothing else does. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, you know, God whispers to us in our pleasure. In other words, his voice is kind of small in our pleasure. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that is such a profound statement because I want you to think about this. When someone wins the lotto or they win a car on a game show or they get an inheritance from a relative they didn't even know they had or whatever it might be, you know what they don't do? They don't drop to their knees and scream at the heavens, why, why did you let this happen? No one ever does that. They don't ask the big why questions when good things happen. We might praise God, we might thank the Lord, we might be grateful to whatever thing we happen to believe in, but no one asks the deep questions of life, like what's the point of existence? How did we get here? What is this all about? No one does that when good things happen, but they ask the profound questions about who God actually is and what is this all about when there's pain. Pain has a way of sharpening our focus on the things that matter. And maybe as we come to the tail end of what we've all gone through, as a world, in fact, we've seen some real transformations. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who have seen God for the first time because of their pain, not despite their pain. But it's the incomparable God, the God who is worthy of our worship, and I'm going to get to that in a second, who I want to talk to you about today. And you can apply whatever you want from what you, what you hear, but I want to give you three ways in which God is incomparable. And by the way, when I say this, I don't mean there's only three ways. I was listening to Crawford Loritz a couple, couple of weeks ago. My family and I were on a family camp vacation, and Crawford was there, and he was speaking. And if you have never heard Crawford Loritz speak, please do yourself the favor of finding out where he might be speaking or listening to something online of his. He's a brilliant expositor of the word. And he, like most preachers, will get up and say, I want to show you four things or seven things or 75 things, you know, whatever it happens to be, they're going to give you. And it's a list of things, whether it's, you know, God's greatness or ways to uh, fix your marriage or whatever it might be. Every pastor will tell you they only give that list to that level because they got to fit it in within 35 to 45 minutes, unless there's a series of things, and we'll see if they can get longer. But that list is not meant to be exhaustive. It is not the 67th book of the Bible, as Crawford would say. It's just simply the list they can come up with at the, at the particular time. So I'm going to give you three ways in which God is incomparable. But here's the irony of the situation is that the list of things that God is good at and great for and incomparable in is actually itself incomparable. The gods of other religious systems just simply can't compare and so the list would be infinite, which is the beauty of heaven. For eyes not seen, nor ear has heard, nor has entered into the heart of man that which God has prepared for those who love him. So what heaven is going to be like is this list of incomparable things will grow longer and longer and have more and more subparts to it as we infinitely explore the incomparability of our God for an eternity and are continuously, perpetually amazed. So I want to go with the first thing about God's incomparability. And the first thing is this, is he's incomparable in his existence. He's incomparable in his existence. Now, some might say, well, obviously, he's supposed to be non not created. He's eternal and all this stuff, and he's, he's God after all. But I want you to know something. I want, I want you to think about something. When people talk about God, oftentimes, whether it's believers or non-believers, we often have this sort of like anthropomorphic or like humanish way we look at God and we think of him as, you know, either this long gray beard and we have like the Sistine Chapel look about God or, you know, an atheist might say, hey, do you believe in Zeus? And you say, no. 
do you believe in Hera or Hermes or Marduk or Jupiter or and they, Krishna or, or uh, uh, Shiva? And they list all these different gods. You say, no, 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 no. They say, well, you're an atheist when it comes to all these gods. I'm just an atheist about one more god than you. In other words, you're a god too. And it sounds clever. But the reality is what they've mistaken is, is that the conception, the God of the Bible, the way the, the Bible describes God is nothing like any of those other gods. Nothing like them. Incomparable in existence and in character. But let's focus on existence first because when you look at all the various gods, the gods of the ancient Babylonians, the gods of the ancient Greeks, the gods of uh, even today in, in certain religious systems that are polytheistic or whatever it is, all of those gods have an origin story. They actually have a story of how they came into being. Even the Greek gods, even the, the, the chief of the gods, Zeus, has an origin story about how he was birthed from Kronos and, and all this, and th these, these ways in which he came into being. In other words, they're not the same being because the God of the Bible doesn't actually have an origin story because there is no origin. He didn't begin. He always was. And so that's a fundamental difference. Even the gods of the Babylonians sort of emerged from the ether. They had a point of existence that began. They weren't timeless. They required something else to explain themselves. And God is different in the Bible. There's a reason the Bible says in the very first lines, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it says in the beginning. It doesn't mean in God's beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning of existence, God already existed and then created these things. So he's uncreated. He is an uncreated being. Everything depends on him. This was actually talked about by a philosopher named Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. Leibniz pointed out, um, he wanted to make an argument for God's existence, and he asked the question, he said, why is there something rather than nothing? Why does anything exist at all? Why am I even here to ask the question? Some, you can't just say, oh, it just exists and no big deal. I mean, if you were to walk down the street and you saw a big glowing ball the size of a car, perfectly spherical, and it just glows and has a nice hum to it, and you want to you look, look to one of your friends, and I'm getting this argument from William Lane Craig. You look to one of your friends and you said, oh, that's interesting. And the guy says, how did this get here? What is this all about? What is this thing? And you say, oh, I don't know. It just exists. That's all good enough for me. Would that be good enough of an answer for you? You'd be like, uh, hey, big glowing thing in the middle of the parking lot. Probably should explain why that's here. You want an explanation. Now, just expand that ball to the universe. Don't you want to know why it's here? And Leibniz says, why is there something rather than nothing? And so what he begins to unravel is this, is that this is an idea that the world is created into two different things. There's, there's two different categories of things in all of existence. Follow me here. This is a little on the head of your side, but I promise there's going to be a payoff at the end. There's only two categories of things. There are things that are called contingent entities or contingent beings, and there's a thing called a necessary being. So a contingent being is anything that exists that doesn't explain itself. It needs something else to exist to, to, to account for why it exists in the first place. Your phone is a good example. Your phone, if you have an iPhone, 
exists because a bunch of Apple engineers got together and put together the software, put together the insides of it, and creates a smartphone. But they actually got the idea from Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs exists because he had parents, and his parents exist because they had parents. And on it goes, and on and on, and all that kind of thing. So everyone in the chain of existence of your phone has to have an explanation for why they exist. And it goes back and back and back and to, the, to, the, to the Earth itself, to the universe, to the cause of the universe. It goes back and back. Everything, including the universe itself, has to be explained by something. That's what a contingent being is. It can't exist just because it is. It has to exist because something else causes it. But then the question becomes, why does that apply to God? And some of the atheists will say, well, if God made everything, who made God? Because everything requires an explanation. No, contingent things require an explanation. But be careful, because if you understand how this works, if you have an infinite regress of things that go back in time, then you have an infinitely long past. So if you have an infinitely long past, that means there's no starting point. If there's no starting point to our existence, then how can you get to here? If you can't start, you can't end up in the physical realm. But God is outside of that which is physical. He's outside of the physical universe. So the universe itself, which is contingent, it could have not existed, it could have, has to be explained by something that is necessary. So we have contingent beings and then a necessary being. And a necessary being is a being that can't not exist. It always has to be there. And you have to have that because if everything is contingent, something has to start it all. And that thing has to be non-contingent or necessary. Are you following me so far? Now you can have a couple of candidates for what is a necessary being, like abstract objects, like the number seven or the color red. You know, these things might exist and all these things, or, or, you know, laws of physics or equations. Maybe these things always exist or whatever, but I don't think that they did. But even if they did, they can't cause anything because the number seven doesn't bump into you. The number seven doesn't make you laugh. The number seven can't, like, come up with an iPhone. It just is a, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, impotent being. It has no power of its own. So the only thing that could cause everything else has to be a necessary being that has power and the ability to choose. And what does that sound like? Not the force, like in Star Wars. It sounds like God. It's exactly what it sounds like. So this is this complicated and very sophisticated but compelling argument that Leibniz creates. But here's the beauty, the incomparability of our God, is that God takes that entire argument, the entire argument I just gave you, and he whittles it down to one Hebrew word that means two words in, 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 in English. You recall the story. Abraham encounters the burning bush, and there he is, and he sees this thing, and he sees that the flame is not consuming the bush. It's just not consuming it. He doesn't understand how that could be. And then he hears God's voice. And God says, I am the God of your ancestors or of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Put a pin in that. We're going to get to that later. And Moses doesn't know what to do with this. Basically, God says, I want you to go and speak to Pharaoh 
and we will liberate the slaves. I've heard the oppression of my people in Egypt. And Abraham, sorry, Moses doesn't want to have anything to do with this because he feels like, first of all, I'm not worthy of this. I'm slow of speech. I have problems being eloquent, all this kind of stuff. How am I supposed to do this? And God says to him, who made man's mouth? And he goes on and says some other things as well. What's interesting is, is that right before that, Moses asks God, who shall I say has sent me? What is your name? And God gives his name. Now we have it in Hebrew, it's yod heh vav We put a tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H. We don't know exactly how it's pronounced, but the closest and best guess is that it's pronounced Yahweh. His name is Yahweh, and he tells them Yahweh, but what it means is, I am, or I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent me. I want you to understand the power of this, okay, just for a moment. This is the, the, this is the perfect name for God. This is the perfect name. Not the names of other, in other religious systems. Those names have different meanings and other, other kind of things. But this name is perfection in meaning. Because in other religious systems, the gods emerge from something. They have an origin story. But in the Hebrew Bible and in the Bible that we have today, we see a God who has no origin story. And so when Moses asks him, who sent me? He says, tell them I am. I always have been. I never not was. I've always existed. I am greater than the gods of Egypt who have an origin story. I don't have a hawk's head and a man's body or whatever it might be. I have the quality of the one in whom all things subsist. I am the source of all existence. I am. That's a powerful name. No other religion gives you the name of a God so complete and so perfect as to describe exactly what you would expect the greatest possible being to be like. So Leibniz has this wonderful, beautiful, powerful argument that God distills. He says that there's a necessary being that's out there, and God tells Moses in his name, I am the necessary being. Thousands of years later, Leibniz would come up with with an argument that basically is summarized in God's name. Now here's the beauty of the whole thing. God tells Moses, who is complaining that Moses doesn't have the eloquence. And I wonder if Moses actually, I don't know this, this is a speculation. I wonder if Moses actually was so awed by what he just heard that the name of God in comparison to all the Egyptian gods he had grown up with is I am. He suddenly dawns on him like, this God, the true God of the universe is so different than these impotent, weak, petty gods I have believed in. How did you capture that just in one word? That's eloquent. And so Moses says, how am I going to speak to these people? I don't have any eloquence whatsoever, especially not compared to what I just heard. I don't know if that was his thought process. I'll ask him. But I got to imagine something there happened and when God says, who made man's mouth? In other words, Who is the one by whom and through whom you can even begin to speak in the first place? I think of St. Augustine when St. Augustine was talking about Jesus in the manger. And he was saying, he so loved us that in time, God was created even though he made time. He created the woman who actually bore him. He sat 
a baby in wordless infancy in a manger. He, the word, without whom all human eloquence is mute. One word to describe his beauty, his incomparability. One word, that's his name. We say there's power in the name. Maybe you can think of that next time you sing that. There's power. It's real power. That's why I think sometimes we need to rethink or at least really contemplate some of the phrases we often use when we talk about our praise to God. We praise God all the time and we should. We just did and did it wonderfully. But we say things and even in our songs say it and this is a perfectly valid statement. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not chastising anybody for making this statement. I've said it myself, and I will probably continue to say it, but with a different meaning now that I've thought about it a little harder. We say phrases like, he's worthy of our praises. Have you thought about that for a minute? He's worthy of our praises? Well, if anybody would be, he would be, right? But I want you to think about this for a moment, because... If he's worthy of our praise, what do we give praise to typically? Things that are praiseworthy. But in our common parlance, when we see it, it's like when a family, like when, when, a, when, a, when a child does something well, like, oh my goodness, we're so proud of you. Great job. It's fantastic. Wonderful. You sang so well or you performed so well. Or look at these grades. Or I love the way you helped your sister. Whatever it is, we give them praise because we're in the authority over them and we're developing their character and we give them praise to encourage them to keep going and keep doing well. It's almost, it's not condescending, but it has an authoritative view to it where the one who praises gives the one to the one who's achieved something in the eyes of the praiser. So the one who gives the praise is actually sitting in good, positive judgment of the one who receives the praise as if we are in a position to judge that person. And in a father-son, mother-son, mother-daughter, whatever relationship like that, that's true. That's, that, and in human relationships, that's true too. You get a promotion at work. You're worthy of this praise. You're worthy of this, 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 this reward because someone, you've given them permission to be in judgment of you and pass judgment on you. And so you become worthy of their praise or worthy of the thing that you gave them. And so when we say you are worthy of of our praise, we have to be very careful because we're not praising him because we approve of you, God. We're praising him because his worth is immeasurable and incalculable. It's incomparable. And the Bible says, you look at the King James Version, it says that he inhabits our praise. I think an actually better translation would be for me was that in Psalm 22, verse 3, where it says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In other words, God, he doesn't inhabit our praise by making them good. I mean, I think he does that. But this translation says that he uses, he sits on our praise to demonstrate his majesty. We're fortunate to get to praise him at all. The very air that's forced through your vocal cords so that you can actually praise him, you, have to, you owe him the air, you owe him the vocal cords, and you owe him the unction of the Spirit to praise him in the first place. So it's not necessarily that he is worthy of our praise. We praise him because we can praise him at all. He's incomparable. He's incomparable. And yet it is the same God this holy one who sits and makes our praises his throne, like his footstool, not in an arrogant, condescending way, but he says, this is what I do for your praise. I give it this glory. It doesn't deserve it by itself, but I choose to give it the honor of being my throne. That's gracious. That's beautiful. 
Psalm 22, verses 24 to 26. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation because of his character and because of who he is. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him, seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. There's a, a cycle of praying, praising God for what he's done and praising God for who he is. And oftentimes, I think we mix it up, is that even when we're going through the lowest parts of our lives and we're going through the affliction of the afflicted, that we don't praise God for what he's done. We praise God for who he is, and he is the kind of God who doesn't turn a blind eye to the afflicted and who will feed the, the, the sorrowful and hungry heart because he's incomparable and he's beautiful. When, you, when, when I, you see these things, and this is something that I've been really learning over the course of my time and study with the Lord, is his beauty is unmatched. I mean, taking all of this and, and putting it into his name, I mean, just his name. You carry around his name and you think to yourself, my goodness, there's so much in just the word he used to describe himself. And we spend thousands and thousands of pages over thousands and thousands of years describing him, and yet he does it in one word. And the beauty that's there. You ever hear the phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder? Now, I think many of you have done this. Uh, I certainly have, and if you haven't, get out more. But um, you've gazed on the mountaintops of Colorado, the snow-capped mountains, or you've gone to the Grand Canyon, or you've gone up north <coughs> and looked over the cliffs onto Lake Superior, and you thought, my goodness, how beautiful. My goodness, how gorgeous. And you've actually praised God for the beauty you're seeing. But what's interesting is the mountains, the lakes, the seas, the canyons, they don't repay the compliment. They don't say, hey, thanks, you're looking good today too. <laughs> they don't do that. They don't beautify you. You don't become more beautiful because you gaze them. But here's the amazing part of God's beauty. God is a being so beautiful that when you gaze upon him, he beautifies you. Beauty is not in the eye of the beholder when we look at God. The beholder becomes beautified by what he sees. That's God's lasting effect. When Moses saw God's glory, even the glimpse of God's glory, his face shone so much so that he had to put a veil over himself. And I'm getting this from a good friend of mine named Alonzo who speaks about God and beautification and transmogrification, which is a fancy word. But Moses is so beautified by beholding even the glimpse of God that it actually physically manifests itself. God is the most beautiful, incomparably beautiful being, so much so that he makes those who look at him beautiful. And when you gaze upon him through his word, and when you gaze upon him by looking at his son, he beautifies you. He beautifies the eye of the beholder. And he changes what you want to look at and what you want to see. So he's beautiful and incomparable in his existence. Secondly, he's incomparable in his wisdom. In so many ways, in the way he creates the world and in the way he actually teaches us ways to fix the problems that we create, that we create. Thinking about creation, for example, you know, when you think about um, sort of popular scientific theories about how we all got here, human beings, how we all got here, it's that, you know, we, we, we came here through uh, blind chance, um, 
mindless forces of uh, survival of the fittest, coupled with genetic mutations and various mechanisms that don't have a prevision in mind. There's no design, and those forces work together without really thinking about it because there's no mind to think, and all these various species pop up, and they get better and better as time goes on, and some go extinct, and all of a sudden, bam, we're the pinnacle of it. It just happens mindlessly. And yet there is a, a theory or a philosophy in engineering called biomimetics, and you can see it right from the name, it's we mimic biology to solve engineering problems. So our top engineers and our top physicists are trying to figure out how to make something work, some kind of invention, whether it's spacecraft or something small, whatever it might be, and they're trying to figure out how do we make this thing fly or how do we make this thing turn without having to do this first and you know, how do we get the energy to disperse this way and this way? And they don't know how to do it. They're like, well, some animals do it. We know they do it, so why don't we study what the animals do? Uh, for example, how bees fly or there's a single-celled organism that has an actual, if you look at it under the microscope, it has these incredibly complex gears in this one-celled animal has these incredibly complex gears that are biologically made that create a tail that allows it to, to flip around and move and suddenly change direction and hunt for food. It's remarkable and it's incredibly, incredibly specific in its complexity to perform a function. And so our engineers say, okay, how did nature solve the problem? Maybe we can then solve our own engineering problems by mimicking that. And that happens and that's a, called a field of biomimetics. But here's my question. If nature is mindless, how come our finest minds draw inspiration from it? We see this in the incomparable wisdom of God, and we see this actually said and discussed in the Bible, at least tangentially, thousands of years before our engineers decided to do it. Our engineers decided to mimic life and mimic biology and learn from life and biology and the Bible said it years and years, millennia and centuries ago, in Job chapter 12, verses 7 to 9. But ask the beasts, and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens, and they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. And the fishes of the sea will declare to you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? My friend Fazrana, who is a biochemist, pointed this out to me. This is the kind of thing that God does. He springs on you his wisdom thousands of years before we are even able, even able to think of the idea. It's incomparable wisdom. Even dealing with the issues of our day. The biggest issues of our day right now, among the many, and we, can't, we seem to create more and more as time goes on, um, but the big issues we have to wrestle with and deal with, and I'm not going to wrestle with them and deal with them right now, so be, be assured I'm not going to get political on you, but racial inequality gender inequality. We've been dealing this with for a long time and now they're coming to a sharp, sharp head and we have to figure out a way to deal with these things. We have to do it. I'll give you an example and there's many, many examples. I'm actually writing a book on this right now but there's many, many different examples of the way in which Jesus, and I'm going to take gender for an example, that Jesus shows that he doesn't incidentally but on purpose deals with gender inequality in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, a time when, frankly, Middle Easterners are not known for being like super, you know, gender positive uh, in terms of equality. Um, but it's changing, thank God. But in Jesus' day, it was a big issue. Women were not allowed in education. 
I mean, I can read, rattle off for you the stories of the rabbis who say it is better to stand in front of a roaring lion than it is to teach a woman the law. I mean, it's pretty bad stuff. So here's Jesus, a Jew who knows the law, this sort of upstart guy that comes on the scene. And people expect him to act in accordance with the traditions of his time, and he doesn't. So you know the story of Mary and Martha. You've read the story, you've seen the story, and if you don't know the story, here's the nutshell of it. Is Jesus and the disciples and others are coming to their house for a, for a, for a dinner. And like true Middle Easterners, Mary and Martha, want to pres- uh, t- sisters, want to put on a spread. They want to put on a nice spread. If you've ever gone to a Middle Easterner's home, even for coffee, you realize it's not really for coffee, it's for, di- it's for dinner. And then they bring out dinner after that. So this is the way it goes. So they want to prepare this wonderful feast. They, they can't wait to have Jesus in their home. My goodness, this is going to be fantastic. So Martha goes about preparing all the meal and doing all the thing and cleaning the house and all this. But Mary is sitting with Jesus, and Jesus is teaching her stuff. And the Bible specifically says she sits at the feet of Jesus. Specifically says that. Now, this is not a derogatory term. This is actually meant to be an honorary term because a disciple was, was given the great honor of sitting at the feet of a rabbi. But remember the context. They're not allowed an education, or at least the society won't give them an education. Martha is upset because Mary won't help her make preparations. It doesn't seem unreasonable, does it? But if you put it in the context, you'll see something, even today. So there were some sociological studies done on when women were entering the workforce, particularly in engineering jobs in the 70s and the 80s. And what ended up happening was women, oftentimes it was like one woman in an office of like eight, ten men in engineering firms, which because women weren't actually breaking into those fields as much as they are now. And of course, those women were subject to you know, sexist jokes, sexist treatment, etc. And so they learned to survive and to cope with that. But what was interesting was, is that if you introduced another woman into the equation, and a woman was uh, involved, and, and so now there's two women in the, in the office, what you'd expect is an immediate solidarity of kinds, where they sort of like come together and brace themselves to deal with the issues they have to deal with as they try to make a professional career. And you do see that eventually, that does eventually happen, but a weird phenomenon happens sometimes where the woman who's been there and who's had to endure all the sexism that she's endured, when another woman comes onto the scene, she suddenly starts to act like the sexists who treated her poorly because now there's a target who's not her. And for a short time, maybe I can get a reprieve from all this. And unconsciously sort of treats the other woman in a way that she would never want to be treated. Eventually, they sort of figure it out and they come together and there's a bond there. And so that's wonderful, that's great. But for a short time, the woman has been so acculturated, so tokenized to the ill treatment she's received that she kind of doesn't even see what's going on anymore. It's been so, it's like when the frog boils in the water for so long at some point. And so she tries to, quote unquote, put the other one in their place. Well, Mary and Martha, they live in a, in a culture where a woman's place is in the kitchen. And so what does Martha do? She sees Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, learning from Jesus, and she's upset because Mary won't help her with all the the women's work, so to speak, in the kitchen. And she goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, don't you care? I'm doing all this work, and here's Mary doing this. Don't you care? And Jesus says, Martha, you are worried about much, but Mary has chosen what is better, for only one thing is needful. And Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not 
be taken from her. In other words, Martha, you're saying, Jesus, put Mary in her place. She belongs in the kitchen. This is Martha doing that, another woman. And Jesus says, it will not be taken from Mary. This education you have been robbed of, Mary is now getting, and it will not be taken from her, not even from, by you. Come and join us. Jesus is the revolutionary. He is the counterculturalist who says, this is wrong, and I will not be silent. And he affords her the thing that she needs the most, which is that value and affirmation that you're not just the maid. You are more. Oh, my goodness. Had we actually lived like this since his day and followed his example, where would we be? Where would we be? His wisdom. But he also answers the objections that have only recently sprung up. He answers them well before they sprung up. It's become fashionable of late to say that Christianity is intolerant and, and, and exclusive, that only Christians go to heaven and therefore that's intolerant because other religions, maybe they're right, maybe they're, you know, who knows. But to say that you have the lock on truth and only Christians go to heaven, that seems incredibly arrogant and incredibly intolerant and incredibly exclusive. My goodness, how dare you? But then you read Luke chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. It's the parable of the banquet. I'm going to read it for you. I, uh, if you can't tell, food is my love language. Um, so when I see parables about banquets and about food, I tend to remember them. It's very Middle Eastern, by the way, to use food as analogies for everything. Um, and so Jesus does this. So he's at this, this house, and he's having dinner with some folks, and this is how the parable begins. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus responds. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. That's a lame excuse. That guy didn't need to go see the field after he bought it. Who buys a field and doesn't expect it first? This is just basically lame. Then the next guy says, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. I think I just broke something. We'll get there. Or not. Do you guys hear me? Okay, good. So he says, I buy five yoke of oxen. Please have me excused. I go to examine them. Lame, because you don't buy oxen without examining them first. And then second, the, the next guy says, um, uh, uh, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. What does that even mean? <laughs> Please have me excused. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, sorry guys, not one of, that none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now the whole point of this, of course, is that, a big part of this, I should say, is that the Pharisees and the religious people are basically 
not responding to the invitation. And Jesus is saying, you think you have the right track because you're so religious, but I'm inviting everybody, including the lowest of the low and those you don't think much of. They're the ones who are going to take over and be the ones who come in and sit at the place that was for you. But here's the important point. The Bible and Christianity has been chastised as being a religion of exclusivity. But the invitations go out, and those who don't respond don't get to come in because you've got to respond to come in. But the invitations get broader and broader and broader. Why? So that my house may be filled. Christianity is not exclusive in its invitation. It's simply, it's inclusive in the invitation, but it requires you to respond because there's only one way to heaven. And that's the important point of the parable, among the many, that responds to the objection before it's actually given. But it's interesting that he responds to this objection that's only very of recent vintage. He did it 2,000 years ago. God wants everyone to come, but you have to say yes. His incomparable wisdom. So his incomparable existence, his incomparable wisdom, and thirdly, his incomparable heart. His incomparable heart, and this is the part, honestly, that got me to give my life to Christ, was his incomparable heart. There's a book I recommend everybody get. Without reservation, get this book. It's called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland, O-R-T-L-U-N-D. Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. It's theologically deep, but it's pastorally rich. It really is. And he points out something. He says, you know, he's describing Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, in the heart of God. Why Jesus calls himself gentle and lowly, but he goes into Hebrews chapter 4, verse, verse 15, which talks about where this all is coming from and how it all links together. The, the, the verse says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's a great mystery. Theologians have wrestled with this for the longest time. How is it possible that Jesus was tempted but couldn't sin? How is it he can sympathize with sinners but be without sin? How is that possible? Does that make any kind of real sense? Maybe the writer of the Hebrews is actually kind of trying to figure out how you make sense of Jesus' divinity, but it doesn't really go well, whatever. And so we've been wrestling with this for thousands of years. But Dane Ortland points out something really, really beautiful and really important. He points out two things. The first thing is this. When you look at the Hebrew, um, uh, sorry, the Greek, and the word sympathy, really, what it has two different roots to it. It's got sim, which means co, or alongside of, or with, and then patheo, which is um, passion or suffering. So this is describing someone who co-suffers with us. So what Jesus is doing is not just saying, oh, poor baby. He's actually suffering with you. So he co-suffers in every way. But you're saying, my goodness, you're perfect and you're sinless. How do you know what it's like to be me? Because I'm neither perfect nor sinless. How is this possible? And what Orland actually points out through looking at many, many different commentaries is the beauty of what the scripture actually says is that because Jesus is sinless, he actually sympathizes or co-suffers better than you. Here's the analogy he gives is that if you are covered in filth, let's say you've gone out and you've worked in the yard all day and you're just covered head to turn in, uh, in, in, uh, in uh, Head to turn, meaning dirt. Uh, head to toe in dirt. It's a rough morning so far. 
Um, so you're covered head to toe in dirt. You know, the kind of dirty, when you walk into the house and you blow your nose and like, how to get inside? Um, uh, if someone threw more dirt on you in the middle of that state when you're completely covered, do you even notice? Or when you were a kid and you were rolling around in the mud and you came back to the point where you knew your parents were going to be angry because you've ruined whatever Sunday clothes you had on, and someone throws more dirt on you, do you even notice? You're so covered in dirt, you don't even notice the addition of the dirt. But what if you were spotless? What if you were completely pristine in your cleanliness and you had on the whitest of white suits or whatever it might be that you were wearing and someone even threw a speck on you, you'd notice in a minute. You would feel it. In other words, your sensitivity to the filth is actually higher because you're clean. And so Jesus can sympathize. He can co-suffer with you because he's clean, not because he's dirty. Because he's dirty, he wouldn't feel it as much because he's already as dirty as can be. But he's not. He's pure. He's perfect. He's sinless. And so this is the beauty of it, okay? This is the incomparability of even his ability to suffer alongside of us is that when you suffer through your pain and you suffer because of your sin or someone else's sin, whatever it might be, when you suffer it, you feel it profoundly, deeply, sharply. But the one who is cleaner than you actually feels it more than you do. And so he sympathizes with you in every way, ways you don't even know. And that's what learning through suffering is all about. Because you learn the heart of God. And yet, despite his cleanliness, despite his perfection, Dean Ortland says, he calls himself gentle and lowly. And he deals with us gently and lowly. The incomparable heart. What a contrast. What a contrast to us. What a contrast to us. You know, there's two words that are very, very similar. When someone is wronged, when there's someone who's been wronged by someone else, that person who's wronged seeks, rightfully so, vindication. Vindication is basically this, 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 uh, the way in which we are seen. We are seen for our struggles, we're seen for our hurts, and we want justice. And those who want to help you see, get justice want you to know you have been seen. One of the reasons why God actually says over and over again in the Bible that those who have been oppressed and who have been vulnerable are the ones who are seen. I see you, and I will right the wrong for you. That's vindication. We want vindication when we're wronged. But there's another word that's very, very similar to the word vindication. It's the word vindictive. And the word vindictive is not about getting justice. It's about getting revenge, even to the point of bitterness. And I think there's something very, very poetic, my friends, in the fact that the word for justice and the word for revenge, vindication and vindictive, are so similar because it shows you there's just the hair's breadth line between the two, which means that you have to basically be perfect to not mix them up, and that is not us. But the incomparable heart of God, he is the one who can actually separate them to the two so that the hair's breadth might as well be a canyon between the two. He knows the difference. We do not, which is why the Bible tells us is that take no vengeance for yourself, for the vengeance, vengeance belongs to the Lord, because he's perfect and his heart is perfect on this. But he desires more than just vengeance. He desires justice, of course, but he, he desires restoration and redemption. You know, 
I've looked at various religious systems, even the one of my birth. And the striking comparison that leads to incomparability, as ironic as that is, is that in every system I've seen, God's love is quite conditional. He will love you if you do this. He will love you if you do this. He will bring you back into his favor if you perform enough good deeds or you do enough things or you perform enough rituals or you meditate enough or you have enough lives that you've circled back and your karma is now worked out. It's all on you. It's all on you. The God of the Bible is incomparable because he's unique in saying, all that stuff is impossible. It's impossible. So I'll send my spotless, sinless son to pay the price you should be paying so that you can have eternity with me. That's the incomparable heart of God. That's the gentle and lowly heart of God. Can you imagine it? That the, the God whose name is I am, whose name summarizes thousands of years of philosophy, who's the very seat of all of existence, who speaks and stars and black holes and galaxies and all these things are formed. That same God calls himself gentle and lowly. We don't do that. We lift up people beyond all due because they've done good things and all that. That's wonderful. We have heroes and we should, you know, encourage people to be heroic and all that. That's wonderful. Because history is punctuated with those people. It's punctuated with people who have sacrificed their lives so that others may live. But ladies and gentlemen, there's only one, only one who sacrificed his life so that all may live, even those who don't deserve it. And so history is punctuated by a cross-shaped exclamation point. I remember where I was very vividly when I read Romans chapter 5, verse 8. At the end of my search, toward the end of my search and looking into the things of God and whether or not this gospel is worth believing. And all the intellectual uh, objections had been answered and all the other issues where I was wrestling with. And it down, now it came down to, is this worth it? Is this worth is this God worth following? Is this the, really God, the, real, the real God there is? Now, as a Muslim, I used to say the phrase, Allahu Akbar. You've all heard this phrase. And usually it happens in, a, in the media, something bad happens following it. But it's actually not a terrorist chant or a battle cry. Most Muslims, the vast majority of Muslims, say this phrase, Allahu Akbar, as a prayer and a praise. Because it literally means God is greater. And so for the Muslim heart, the, soul, the, the reason why they believe Islam or, or they, they follow after God is because they want to worship a God who is incomparably great. There can be no being or no God greater than this being. So for me, I wanted to see where can I find the answers to the search for the God who is the greatest possible being. Allahu Akbar. Then it occurs to me as I'm searching and finding these, these different answers and these different philosophies that the gospel points out something wonderful. It stands to reason, follow me on this, it stands to reason that if God is the greatest possible being, then he would express the greatest possible ethic. And what is the greatest possible ethic? The greatest possible ethic is, of course, love. And if he's the greatest possible being, he would express the greatest possible ethic in the greatest possible way. Because you can't be the greatest possible being and do things half-baked. What is the greatest possible way to express love? 
It's when you do something for someone else that helps them and hurts you. Self-sacrifice is the greatest expression of love, and we do it all the time. If we can do it, ought not the God of the universe, the one who creates all things and is the greatest possible being, ought not he be able to do the same thing, but even better than we do it? You see, we sacrifice for those who love us back. That's our, our, our mode of love. We tend to sacrifice for those who love us back, maybe for a stranger, but we don't sacrifice for those who hate us. That's just not how it works. When Osama bin Laden was killed, I don't know of any, of any people, maybe there are some out there, but I don't know of any people who actually said, my goodness, what a shame. I wish he would have one more day of life so I could have witnessed to him and brought him to Christ. Or I wish I could have taken his place so he could have one more day. That isn't something that we, we they think because even in our self-sacrificial expressions, we're very limited. But God is incomparable in his love. And Romans chapter five, verse eight sums it up so well when it says, for God demonstrates his love, his incomparable love, in that while we were yet sinners, those who hate God, Christ died for us. Self-sacrifice to transform those who hate you into those who love you. It is the cross, it is God, it is the gospel that shows a God who transforms thorns into crowns, crosses into thrones, and saints out of sinners. That's the transformation. That's the incomparable heart of God. When I saw that, you just become undone and think, this is what I was looking for all along. This is the God who isn't only what I wish was true, but is actually true. Incomparable. And he draws each one of us. I don't know if you're here listening, watching, whatever it is, and you don't know him yet. But if you, don't, if, you do know, if you don't know him, and you find yourself listening to this, it's because he probably drew you to something, whether it was to respond with an objection, or it was to see, I wonder if this is true or not. There's a reason you're listening. There's a reason you're sitting here. I have a guess as to what it is. He's drawing you. I think of the poem by Jean Marie Walker. She wrote it in, in honor, in, sorry, in appreciation of Maxim Gorky at the International Convention of Atheists of 1929. She talks about doubt and running away from God and God's pers continual pursuing heart, the incomparable heart of a God who pursues and pursues and pursues. This is how she puts it. Like Gorky, I sometimes follow my doubts outside and question the metal sky, longing to have the fight settled, thinking I can't go on like this, and finally I say, all right, it is improbable. All right, there is no God. And then, as if I'm focusing a magnifying glass on dry leaves, God blazes up. It's the attention maybe to that which isn't there that makes the notion flare like a forest fire until I have to spend the entire afternoon spraying it with a hose to put it out. Even on an ordinary day when a friend calls, tells me they found melanoma, complains that the hospital is cold, I whisper, God. God, I say, as my heart turns inside out, pick up any language by the scruff of its neck, wipe its face, set it down on the lawn, and I bet it will toddle right into the God fire, again, which, though they say it doesn't exist, can send you right to the burn unit. Oh, we have only so many words to think with. Say God's not fire. Say anything. Say God's a phone, maybe. You know you didn't order a phone, but there it is. It rings. 
You don't know who it could be. You don't want to talk, so you pull out the plug. It rings. You smash it with a hammer till it bleeds springs and coils and clobbered up metal bit. Yet it rings again, and you pick it up, and a voice you love whispers, Hello. He is the God of future and present hope. When God revealed himself to Moses, he says, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who is I am, the seat of existence, is not an abstract idea, but a personal being who says, I know your history, I know your past, and I have a plan for your future. And Jesus responds and quotes this in Matthew chapter 22, verse 32, when he says, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And the reason, even though those men are dead, is because of the living hope of resurrection. If you don't know him, the phone you've smashed is still ringing. Just answer it. He'll say hi. If you do know him, I pray that whatever you're going through will lead you to know him greater and see how incomparably beautiful he actually is. He's incomparable in his existence. There's no comparison to his wisdom and his beauty and his heart is matchless. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to even speak about you. I praise you, Lord, not because you are worthy of my praise, but because you, you make my praise worthy to be given. I have no beauty in me that you should regard me, yet you do. And those of us who are here, who have maybe felt not as beautiful as we thought we were, or don't feel that image you have on us, Lord, I pray that you encounter us in a special way today that actually beautifies the beholder and brings hope to the hopeless and brings encouragement to the downtrodden. I pray, Lord, that those who are here or who hear this who might not know you, I pray that they come to know you and see that apart from you, there is no existence, let alone beauty and goodness. That you offer an existence that can be full of beauty and goodness because of what your son has done. We thank you for your son. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for the way you've made forward. We thank you for being incomparable. We thank you for the very air in our lungs that allows us to praise you in the first place. And we use that air to pray to you, O oh Father, through the power of your spirit, in the name of your son. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you.